live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. A big thank you for last week, especially the last 10 minutes, which went viral. Be glad to know that you, many, many people wrote in and they were somewhat relieved to uh, finally put this subject to bed. Okay. It's been debated back and forth and you gave pretty strong evidence almost that it didn't exist. And people have been sending in further questions, which we're going to address in subsequent episodes. Um, welcome back to part two on our series on printing. So I believe this week you're going to be speaking about how printing changed the world. And you're not being dramatic when you say that. No, not really. We never really think about what differences printing made other than the assumption that a lot more copies of books were available. But printing is a revolution. It's no different to overthrowing a government in terms of the change that it creates, and not just to one country, but an entire continent. In fact, the Arab world was much slower to uh, bring printing to its shores and is one of the reasons for a loss in dominance. And the uh, Francis Bacon, the English philosopher, he wrote in 1620 that the three inventions that forever transformed the world were gunpowder, the compass, and the printing press. And when you think of what the other two did to, I don't know, conquest, exploration, you get some idea of how revolutionary the printing press was. In a way, the reason it becomes difficult to work out how different the world became is because we are so used to it. But there is perhaps an easy comparison to make, and that is, think about the internet. Compare pre and post-1990, or uh, pre and post having smartphone and WhatsApp, uh, what it did to information, communication, travel, photography, it's incomparable. Think for a moment what your life would be like without that constant little companion. How many times a day? How much do you rely on it? How would you get through your day without it? I can you imagine history for the curious not existing? Exactly. Uh, people people yes. wouldn't be able to right. fathom the concept. Um, so that type of change happens back then. And in fact, Hebrew printing starts quite early. The Gutenberg Bible is in the 1450s, and the first recorded or dated Jewish book is Rashi's commentary on the Torah, which is 1475. Now, uh, when did Rashi die? In 1105. Now, as we touched on, there is an upside and a downside. Uh, one of the uncontrollable problems is mistakes. Um, in manuscripts, professional scribes can make mistakes, but they will be here and there, and the authentic text is more easily reconstructed. But damage caused by printing is almost irreversible because of the numbers, and even if you correct your copy or your country, it's all over. Uh, there is a printing of the Shar Hagmul, which was first printed actually in 1490. The third print run in Ferrara 
uh, tells us that the author was the rumbum rather than the rumbun. Um, it's only one letter out, but it makes quite a difference. You've got the wrong author. And there is an edition of the Kav Hayashar where the introduction says that there's never been such a badly produced work. Mistakes not in the tens or the hundreds, but in the thousands. And I, I once saw an original of what is referred to as the Wicked Bible in Cambridge. They've got the copy. It was produced in the 1660s by the Royal Printers, and it has one word missing in the Ten Commandments. So it reads, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> it's not the ideal error to make if you want to keep your job under you know, the auspices of the Archbishop. You need that word not in there. So that's what happens with mistakes. And another downside to printing is that controversial texts would be printed. I guess here we could say that the church had more to lose than the Jews in this area because the church's views were so non-negotiable on so many topics. You know, anything that challenged their view, the sun going around the earth, uh, any challenge to the Pope, they wanted it censored. They wanted the authors to be accused of heresy. But when new technology comes along, that the first group to be heard through this technology generally are the people who were silenced in the earlier systems, which means the radical voices. And after the printing press starts, it becomes nearly impossible to destroy all copies of a dangerous idea. And the more dangerous a book was claimed to be, the more people wanted to read it. So if the church published a list of banned books, then the booksellers in other countries, they knew exactly what to print. Sort of, yes. And it couldn't have happened before printing, because then you literally could just kill the author. I mean, famously, Luther was the greatest challenge to the supremacy of the Pope in 500 years. He nailed his 95 theses, his 95 objections to the church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, and he would get excommunicated. But pre-printing, so, you know, the German Christians would have heard about him. But in France, Holland, you know, forget it. How? Now, copies of Luther's document were being printed in London 17 days later. The whole continent found out. And the church is powerless. It's, you know, you're sending a WhatsApp to an international group. It's all over. It's all out there. And because of the printing press, Luther became the world's first best-selling author. His translation of the New Testament into German sold 5,000 copies in two weeks in a world where the vast majority of people were illiterate. You know, his, his Bible went through 430 editions. Think of it in terms of the 1500s. It, it's just, uh, you know, it's a revolution. In the Enlightenment era, a little bit later, so you have philosophers, uh, Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, they taught that through their writings, the concept of critical reasoning which more or less encouraged people to question authority, especially religious authority. At what stage in history did most of the world become literate? Well, that's an unfair question to ask in the sense that when we talk about majority of people, because we're including Africa and the Far East, 
if you would ask that question about Europe, it'd be a very different question. And even then, you'd have to more or less exclude Russia. The emancipation of the serfs is only towards the end of the 19th century. So, you know, until the 19th century, it's not the case, even in Europe till the beginning of it. But when you say the world, it's, you know, it's not a question that you can answer in, in that sense. So beyond mistakes and challenges, you have questionable books in the Jewish world. Until that point, the only handwritten Svarim were the well-known ones. You know, now you get some wealthy guy who decides to finance his own commentary. Someone once came to the Neide Behuda with his printed commentary to Kehelles. And the Neide Behuda looks through it and he says, this is an amazing work. And uh, obviously the author is very chuffed and he says, well, you know, how so? And Sadnodibuda answers, Shlema Melech was the wisest of all people, yet your commentary makes him out to be an idiot. That's an amazing feat. (laughs) But that's what happens when printing starts. Okay, I think you've spelled out the disadvantages of of the printing era, Um, but I'm sure there were a lot of advantages too, the obvious probably being availability. You can suddenly read everything. Yeah, so in the Middle Ages, the largest known Jewish library uh, was owned by the Fincy family in Mantua. And according to an inventory in the 1450s, the library was made up of 226 books. 226? That's that's only an afternoon shopping for you, Rabbi Hirsch. Well, if I was in Israel, yes. In Israel. (laughs) So now what happens, every Jewish city without exception was enriched by Svarim across the whole continent. And it brings Ashkenazi texts into the Svaradi world and vice versa. Philosophy, Kabbalah is an exchange of these two. And the Talmud is the greatest beneficiary. It was the most important Jewish work to be printed. Not the Chumash, not Tanakh, the Talmud. And it's no exaggeration to say that printing protected the Talmud from destruction. I mean, to put it into perspective, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, we are missing one third of its contents, which were still around in the 13th century, and missing due to uh, book burnings, exile, confiscations by the church, that could no longer happen post-printing. There are too many copies. It's in too many countries. You don't need that many. So, you know, you have copies in Catholic countries, Protestant countries, Muslim countries. We know that two copies of the Talmud survived in Henry VIII's England, where there were no Jews. So the Pope can't control the written word, and as the people of the book, we were direct beneficiaries. But as you say, before the 13th century, there must have been so many writings over history that were lost forevermore. Well, even post-printing, I would say that there are certain works which are lost, important ones, but the Talmud was safe. And at a time when the church was much more militant, you know, the 1500s was the time of the counter-reformation of the church. The church was on the back foot because of people like Luther. And the Talmud survives. But it's not just the, the preservation of the Talmud. Printing changes the Talmud. In fact, changes almost everything about it that we take for granted. Page numbers, the length, the spellings. What do you mean by the page numbers? 
Well, manuscripts don't have page numbers. It would be meaningless because each codex is unique, even if it's written by the, the same author or scribe, because you write and it's however many pages it takes you to write. Uh, Haggadah, whatever it is. It depends on what material you were writing on, how large the page was, the blank page. So it could be 50 pages or 38, 61, no one cared. And if you wanted to cross-reference, you need chapters or maybe a subheading. In fact, that's one of the reasons the church were very hot on chapter divisions. They are the ones that introduced it into Tanakh, not the Jews. It's very useful for things like disputations with the Jews. You know, they would say something like, um, Isaiah says, and so the Jews would say, where? And, you know, the church would say, well, in you know, my version, it's 185 lines in. And the Jews would say, no, it can't be 185 lines in. That's a poem. So, you know, imagine, you know, running a cure of Seder. Turn to page, uh, actually forget that. Hmm. Th that's what happens. You know, you don't have page numbers because you couldn't have used them even if they were there. And then you have the spelling of words. If you write by hand, then how many people are going to read it? But if you print, then you need to have standards for spelling. And then there is the layout of already the early printed Talmud. Handwritten copies of the Talmud were generally written without commentaries. Later, they added Rashi sometimes. So when did the Talmud appear like we have it today? By 1563, all Talmud appears with Rashi and Tosfos, because initially in Spain, pre-expulsion, you have a printing of some tractates, they didn't print the entire Talmud, but you have it with Rashi and the Ramban, Nachmanides. But we have nowadays Tosfus. Even then, Tosfus, the very word means additions of a number of commentaries who lived in, in northern France and in Germany over a period of more than a century. Now, those that learn the Talmud know that we have other texts like Tosfus Harosh, and certain tractates have other types of Tosfus, sometimes at the, at the back or in, in, in small. Who decided which Tosfus made it into the main pages? Who decided? The printers. Really? Yes. Gershon Sonsino writes that many years earlier, he traveled through France and Geneva seeking the Tosfus of Tuk, from whom he was descended, and therefore he calls them our Tosfus. So it's because of him. Now, it's not without rhyme or reason. It's not simply playing favoritism. You, you did have to select, but the ones that didn't make the cut were because of him. But was he a learned man? Presumably, if he's traveling and looking for these, he would know what did and did not make sense. Right. You know? And then there are other layout elements. The text, the central text is always in square letters and Russian toasters are in you know, cursive script, also from Sonsino. So Rashi didn't actually write in that script that he's famous for? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. 
And then very famously, every tractate of the Talmud starts on page two, never on page one. Why? Because Sonsino tractates didn't have a title page. They were bound with a uh, blank leaf, which was counted as the first page. And therefore, the second page in the book was the first page of the tractate. Bomberg carried on this practice, so that's why it starts on Duff Base. And printing, therefore, also affects halacha. It unleashed a, a wave of legal questions. Uh, printer's rights, copyright, these are all new things. You look at response in the 1500s, it's the first time they're tackling this. And in a way, you could say it changed the halachic process of deciding a law because Svarim like the Shulchan Aruch allowed the text rather than the teacher to reign supreme in, in, in many ways. Which brings about a big issue, I'm not sure if you mentioned yet, censorship. So, yes, uh, censorship by the church is a, is a very big topic, and as is copyright, which I mentioned in passing. So I'm only going to touch on them tonight because I wanted to look at a different angle, one that is less spoken of, and that is the Jewish-imposed censorship, self-censorship or censorship sometimes for competition reasons. Very early on, there are attempts to curb the Hebrew, the Jewish printing industry by communal control. So in Salonika, which at the time was part of the Ottoman Empire, in 1529, the rabbis of the city come together because some improper material had been printed, and they decide that no one can print any manuscript without the consent of the rabbis of at least six communities in the city. I think Salonika had 11 different communities. And anyone who breaks this ordinance is going to be put in cheyrem, is going to be banned. And if people don't abide by this rule, then the printers and the buyers will be excommunicated. Um, and you have uh, about uh, 20 years later in Ferrara, Italy, several northern Italian communities um, come up with more or less the same idea. No book that has yet to be published, in other words, no new published book can be done except with the permission of at least three rabbis, which, by the way, is the origin of what we call haskomus, approbations that you find at the beginning of a printed book. I thought that's just people trying to get their books sold faster and That more is global. exactly its function nowadays, absolutely, but that's not where it starts. It starts in the 1500s because you need to make sure that the church or others wouldn't object to the work, so you need to have somebody has gone through it and put his neck on the line saying it's okay. Wow. And you have the, the Vard Arbarotis, the Council of Four Lands in Poland. They do similar decree in 1494, although they also did so to avoid competition between printers and protect writers. And actually, whereas in Italy, we don't see very much compliance with these demands, but elsewhere it was uh, quite effective. Why was Italy unsuccessful? Because 
In Italy, in the beginning of the 16th century, so Jews owned and operated their own presses like Sonsino. This became prohibited by law in Italy. So Jews had to bring their books to Christian printers. And now Jews are at best silent partners or employees. So the Jewish establishment had limited, very limited power to control. In fact, in Italy, they even banned... Jewish typesetters. The type had to be set by non-Jews and the correctors who were Jewish would review afterwards. And if the non-Jewish typesetters would set and print on uh, late on a Friday afternoon or on Shabbos, then you had a problem. Was this just because of censorship or they wanted to dominate the market printing? You no, know, it came about because of censorship, absolutely. And therefore you have at least 30 books printed in that century where the correctors, you know, throw up their hands and they say, we can't be held responsible for the mistakes because of Shabbos deadlines. So, you know, now to avoid too much competition between the printers, you also have a a form of self-censorship. So rabbis often granted a license for a particular period of time, 10 years, 25 years, depend on how big the work was, what the outlay was. And no one can print this safe or set um, in, you know, whatever country. And they would also appear as part of the Haskama at the beginning of the book. So you've got in 1697, the Talmud is printed in Frankfurt on the Oder. This was the first set of Gomorrah which was printed with an approbation. And it forbade the publication of rival editions, even individual tractates. But in 1721, the head of the Besdin in Frankfurt am Main, which is the other Frankfurt in Germany, there are two, ones in the east, ones in the west, to make things complicated. He allowed one tractate, Sanhedrin, to be printed. And the reason he gave was that if they leave out certain commentaries that are normally printed, in this particular case it was the Piskei Rosh and the Rambam's Perish Mishnayis, then this edition isn't a tractate, it's a contrast, it's a pamphlet. Although the excluded commentaries were actually printed in the end, so you know, it undermined his authority. And in many cases, they circumvented the prohibition on individual sectors by printing in a smaller format. So you can imagine a whole mass of response dealing with these issues. And since it involves money and investment, it will make waves all over Europe and lots of arguments. Um, I'll, I'll um, share a couple of interesting ones. Um, Schlemmer Gunsfried, who is the famous author of the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, which is the abbreviated version of the Code of Jewish Law. He found out that somebody translated his Sefer into Yiddish. So the question is, who actually owned his book in the first place, the original? Can you own a book which is an abridged version of somebody else's book? It's a Kitzer. It's an abridged version of the Shulchan Aruch. But that actually wasn't Shlomo Gunsfried's main issue. He printed a letter which says that he declares that Rabbi Yaakov Aaron Price of Lvov 
has published this translation without my consent. He has distorted its meaning with many mistakes and filled it with nonsense such as never been uttered before. And it's now a serious stumbling block for the masses. And therefore, he appears to every rabbi to warn the people of God not to bring this book into their homes. And it's signed um, Sivan in, in 1873 in Ungvar, which is, which in fact, where he is still buried, have been to the cave there. So Are there um, any copies made it to present day of, of the Yiddish? Of this Yiddish. Uh, possibly. I actually don't know, but it's possible because be it depends. interesting to cross-reference and right, see the it, it, nonsense. Well, the Kittershochen Oroch was reprinted so many times in his lifetime because it was a staple uh, all over Eastern Europe. You know, you had small groups learning this safer between Mincha Maru, for instance. So for that reason alone, maybe the Yiddish didn't survive because actually they would have it taught to them in, in the Hebrew. So mm. I don't know. And you have in the 17th century, two printing establishments in Amsterdam who competed for the right to publish a German translation of the entire Tanakh. In 1676, Rabbi Yekutiel Blitz prints his version. And he is, in fact, even partly sponsored by two non-Jews. He had a special permit from the King of Poland. He has endorsements from influential rabbinical personalities and a protective ban so that nobody else can get involved in a competing edition of what he has done. They're all set. Right. Then you get another guy called Witzenhausen, and he publishes his own translation two years later with his own set of rabbinical endorsements. So they said to me, you know, what are you doing? So he said, listen, Blitz is not proficient either in Hebrew or in German. And not only that, but the non-Jews who sponsored it are not going to be very happy because his translation has verses slanted against Christianity. And in the end, Blitzer's translation is pulled and it doesn't reappear for another five years until two rabbis examined it. Wow. And then you have printers sometimes putting a false state on the front page of their book predating it not to avoid jewish non-jewish censors but to pretend that it was printed before any jewish ban was made so, so all these limitations they they caused a lot of difference of opinions over time yes absolutely and it is a scope for halacha which develops only post printing none of this was an issue beforehand in fact, possibly the most interesting case of Jewish censorship was of the Ramah, the famous Rav Moshe Isselis, the co-author of the Code of Jewish Law in the 16th century. As well as writing that or co-writing, he wrote Responsa. In many editions, Responsa number 124 is missing. It's taken out, either by the printers or the rabbis who didn't want people to read it. And the question, the topic, was whether there is any justification for people to drink non-Jewish wine, which they do in Moravia. Now, you may remember that we discussed this a few weeks ago because the Maral, who was the chief rabbi of Moravia, said it is forbidden, full stop. The Ramah comes up with a, what you would call a limud schus. It's not an allowance, it's a limited leeway specifically for travelers on the road. Now, he lives at exactly the same time as the Maral. In fact, he might have even been writing to the Maral, because we don't have a name in that 
responsum, but they took it out because that's not the halacha, and they felt that it posed such a problem if you leave it in because it will encourage the practice. And I've seen an early edition, and it goes from number 123 to 125. Yeah. But that was done with a purpose, with a calculation in mind, not uh, a business reason. And sometimes the origin of the censorship problem might have been Christian, but the solution was so Jewish. Uh, how to work around it without being noticed and making sure you can supply your clients one of the famous printing houses of Salonica was the Bashevi printing. It's an Italian family, Italian Jewish family of German origin. And recently, a copy of, a unique copy, in fact, of Tractate Brochus, printed by them, has come to light. What is so unique about it? A little background. In 1553, the Talmud was burnt in Rome and shortly afterwards in several other cities in Italy, Padua, Venice. And the printing of the Talmud was prohibited, both the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. You find in the introduction to the Minchas Kanoas by Rabbi Chil Nissim, he writes in Italy that because of lack of Gomorrahs, he is unable to learn from the sources that he needs, and he has to rely on quotes in the writings of the Rambam, of the Sefer Mitzvah Godel, or the Rosh, and uh, the Gedule Truma, who writes almost the same thing. Once again, in Italy, it was very difficult. And suddenly, a letter turns up in Italy. It's sent to the Rabonim in Venice from this printing house in Salonica. They write that printing an edition of the Talmud is expensive, so they're sending a representative to Italy to secure funding. And Avraham Bashevi comes to Italy, and Rabbi Leon de Modena writes a letter on his behalf to the communities of northern Italy, explaining how, you know, we all have to pitch in, we have to help this printing house in Salonica secure this undertaking, it requires considerable funds, and anybody who can should provide support. And this mitzvah can be acquired either by a loan of money, which would be repaid when the first sets of Talmud are sold, or the donor could receive books in you know accordance with the value of his donation as an investment and the letter mentions that Bashevi is traveling on from Italy to Germany but there is no evidence that Bashevi ever went to Germany because the whole thing was an elaborate Jewish hoax meaning the Italian Jews needed to get hold of copies of the Gemara but they couldn't print them and they are not allowed to import them other than the, the Basel edition, which was so heavily censored that there wasn't even a tractate on Avodazara dealing with idolatry, because most of it would have been ripped out by the censors. So, you know, they, they can't get hold of one. So how do you get them copies of the Talmud? You get them books, which aren't really books, they're investments. They represent money that I have given to this firm in Salonica. It's nothing to do with knowledge. And, you know, there's no follow-up letter to this original letter because once the subject is broached, it's, you know, indiscreet and it could be a serious breach of the law. So you keep it, you know, you make people aware and then you keep it under wraps. And, you know, the Salonica Press was owned by a wealthy sponsor. He didn't need to send schnorrers to Italy. 
Anyway, they were only printing individual tractates, so how much money would they need? But by 1592, Italian jury knew they couldn't print their own Talmud, so they resorted to intrigue. As you said, very Jewish thinking. Very. And printing sometimes needed a, a lot of planning. One other print run worth mentioning. So in Europe, you have Muranos, who had sometimes been able to return to Judaism by leaving Portugal, especially if they came to Italy, and they were still inexpert in Hebrew. And Ferrara, besides for the established native Jewish community, had a large body of Muranos from Spain and Portugal, and there was a well-known Jewish printing press there, and they produced the famous Spanish Bible in 1553 but it's printed in two forms one of them christian one of them jewish and dedications make it quite clear that they're two separate versions the main change is the variation in the famous verse in isaiah in yeshia in chapter 7 which constituted one of the great points of dispute between jews and christians the verse in English, literally, is, Behold, a maiden shall conceive and bear a son. But Christians want to translate the word Alma, which is the Hebrew, not as maiden, but as a virgin, because this is the whole passage about the virgin birth, except the posuk doesn't say busula, which is problematic for the church when this is the verse that supposedly proves immaculate conception and does nothing of the sort when you read it in Hebrew. Okay, so now you need to translate it into Spanish. And we find in the Bibles three versions for this one word. The word virgin, the word maiden, or the word Alma. <laughs> Covering like, all bases. Right, so it's, you know, it's one of the three. And the word Alma is basically a transliteration of the original Hebrew as sort of like a compromise. Now, there are five copies in the British Museum, three printed for the Christians, and they all use the word Alma the neutral one, which is a little bit odd. And two of the copies in the British Museum are for the Jews. And one uses the term maiden, as you'd expect. But one in the Jewish copy uses the term virgin, which is really odd. And then there are two more in the Bodleian, one Jewish, one Christian. And also they don't have the same. The Christian one has virgin, the Jewish one has Alma, which is the whole thing's very bewildering. But what actually happened was was that the editors began by using the term maiden because they were Jewish printers and they're translating it as it's always translated. And then they realize, hang on a second, we're in a Catholic country. This is heretical. So they alter it first to virgin and then to the sort of the non-committal Alma. So you've got, you know, theology, printing, finance and danger. It all makes an interesting mix. Well, um <laughs> That is weird. Yes. You mentioned last week the challenge that even after it started and with all the benefits, printing wasn't profitable. Yes. Can you so, expound on that? Right. So we said last time that until there's a distribution network, I mean, you can compare it to uh, e-books until Amazon introduced the Kindle, it struggled to, to find a market. So we said, well done, Mr. Gutenberg. You've printed 200 copies of the Bible and there are three people in your town who can read Latin. What are you going to do with the others? 
So Gutenberg died penniless. His presses are taken by his creditors. And other German printers move to greener pastures. They arrive in Venice, which, crucially, was the central shipping hub of the Mediterranean. So you've got 200 copies of a book in Venice. You sell five to the captain of each ship leaving port. And this is, you know, the first mass distribution mechanism for printed books. When they overcame that challenge, there was a side benefit. Because besides for the ships leaving with these texts, the printers in Venice created and sold four-page newspapers, used pamphlets to sailors. And when these ships arrived in distant ports, the local printers would copy the pamphlets and hand them off to riders who would race them off to dozens of towns in that country. So people couldn't read in the 1490s or whenever. Locals would gather at the pub and they'd hear a paid reader recite the latest news, which, you know, it covered everything from scandals to war reports. And it radically changed the consumption of news. It made it normal to go check the news every day, just like we do. Well, and and that, pa- that page reader could have made it all up as well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the beginning and, of fake news. And it starts then. This is a revolution. People finding out about things. Internationally. Yeah. yeah. We don't Even think about it this. it was a few months old by the time they got it. But. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's pre and post smartphones. Although... Paradoxically, and we'll end with this, and we haven't mentioned this important point, just like nowadays, since the printed word became much cheaper to create, it was no longer seen as the unvarnished truth. Printing made people more informed and at the same time made them more suspicious. Maybe I'm being fed an untruth. Fake news. So... There you have it. Now, next week, we look at perhaps the most unusual Jewish printer, a chassid who became a heretic and in both stages of his life printed multiple works and spent quite some time in prison. Okay, great. So we're excited for next week. Thank Rabbi Hirsch. Another fascinating episode. I think that a lot of the feedback that we've been getting throughout these series have been people writing how much they appreciate living in today's day and age, how much gratitude they have of all the basic luxuries that, I mean, take obviously, for the, the take for granted, the Holocaust was a very big extreme. But even a thing like this, I'm sure the feedback will be as tremendous, just, just the written word, the fact that we're up to date with the new, which right. I don't know if we a- want to be. And it's not follow- only in terms of gratitude, it's the fact that there are page numbers in the book. You don't even think about it. Why would you? Yeah, then you can look at your swarm shelf a bit differently now. <laughs> yes, I guess. Okay. As usual, any suggestions, feedback, reviews, please do send to podcast at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Is the places to Prague I, that you mentioned before? A couple of places left, but they'll have to get in quite quickly. I've heard the ticket prices have gone a bit wild. Yes, we can probably do a slightly more uh, European price because it was originally <laughs> priced in dollars. Yes. Okay. Okay.